You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. And welcome to another edition of the Bo's Nose Show. And uh, I tell you, I almost didn't make it. I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where I just got notification that we're going to have our power turned off for three and a half hours tomorrow morning with less than 24 hours notice, which includes the meter that goes to the shop that has my wife's business in it. So I was frantically contacting EPUD to figure out whether they could reschedule that maybe because my wife's on deadline for her magazine. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, turns out that I could only postpone it into next week, which would be even worse for Elizabeth's schedule. So it turned out we're letting them uh, go ahead and turn our power off tomorrow with less than 24 hours notice. not very happy about that, but, you know, that was kind of a frantic thing. That I, It was just fortunate that I was sitting at my computer preparing for the Bose Nose Show when this email pops up and says, power outage <laughs> scheduled. It's like, what? What's that about? Oh, my goodness. Small panic here. Um, so we're going to have to, you know do all that stuff about making sure everything's saved and ready and, and you know, I'm going to have employees twiddling their thumbs for three hours tomorrow uh, while our power's out. Um, I guess, yeah. Thank you, EPUD, for the the warning. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to try and recover from that sudden emergency that popped up right before the show and uh, settle down talk about what we've been talking about forever, COVID and housing affordability and, you know, racism and other things that we that have come up here regularly on the Bose Nose Show, because there's so much to talk about. And uh, definitely just want to remind folks that if there's other things that you want to talk about on the Bose Nose Show, all you have to do is call us. And that's, uh, darn it, my... What is going on? 7621 I know, but it's weird. I can't get into the studio. There we go. <laughs> All right. Sorry, I was, you know, one of the things if I, in, in my panic, I didn't get to bring up the show on my internet and stuff like that. And I'm not on the studio, so I can't see if anyone's calling in. So I was trying to bring that up at, one, at the same time, give the phone numbers. Thank you, EPUD. Six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. Just press one. I wanted to be able to see the board, so if I announced that we were taking calls, I could see if we got a call. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, it is a call-in show, and we are live, and we are student-run radio, so that's why it's so unprofessional and something as simple as a scheduled power outage that I didn't know about till the last second can cause chaos on the Bo's No Show. Um, but other things are causing chaos around Wayne County, and one of them is we are seeing a rise in our number of cases of COVID-19 here in Lane County, which has brought us back up you know, out of the low risk category into the moderate and almost into the high as far as number of cases per 10,000 in population over the two week period that we're supposed to be seeing. Uh, and fortunately though, the governor, you know, has decided that we get this two week window of reprieve before they, they increase the, the restrictions on our businesses to try and turn those numbers around and, and good, stay in that low risk category. And we want to stay there because that allows our restaurants to be at least at 75% capacity and, and, you know, other businesses to be more open and, and theaters to be allowed to have more people in them. Uh, and, you know, this whole COVID restriction thing has really been slamming small businesses. It's been great for big businesses like Amazon.com and Costco are doing just fine. You know, Kroger, they're doing fine. But your local restaurant, your local theater, your, you know, your local gymnasium, they're not doing so well at COVID. So it's really important that we keep taking the precautions we're taking. We're doing great on vaccinations here in Lane County, although Compared to the rest of the nation, Oregon isn't doing great, but compared to the rest of the state, Lane County is doing really well. We're still leading in per capita vaccination amongst the large population counties. Um, and you know, we're actually scheduling to put 20,000 injections in arms this coming weekend in two days. So that's, that's pretty amazing stuff that we're doing. Uh, and we're ready to ramp up to 30,000 vaccinations a week out of our our clinics, and, and that's not including the pharmacies that are getting vaccine doses directly from the federal government through the federal government's pharmacy program and, and other places that are giving out um, vaccinations. So, you know, we're doing pretty well, and we're up to about a third of our adult population has had at least one dose. Um, but that still leaves two thirds that has zero protection right now. And it's those two thirds that we're seeing the cases in because people are getting a little bit fatigued about taking precautions and we're seeing private gatherings being the, you know, as we do our contract tracing on some of the cases, that's tending to be where we're seeing the spreading uh, and the rise in numbers coming from is, you know, Folks are finally wanting to socialize because they think that the fact that there is vaccine out there that, that, that they can relax a little bit. Problem is, is, is we're seeing that we're not just seeing college students like we did in the last surge. We're seeing all ages increasing the number of cases. It's very broad across, across all age groups. And um, we're also starting to see a lot younger people be hospitalized right now. Our hospitalizations, because we concentrated our vaccinations in, in elderly populations, we're not quite seeing quite as many of them. We're still seeing them, though, because we still haven't gotten 100% of our elderly folks fully vaccinated. 
you know, first dose is one thing, second dose and two weeks to get full immunity. Remember that. It's not just two doses, two doses in two weeks. Um, that's, you know, the percentage of people that have gone, you know, elderly folks that are two doses in two weeks is not as high as the people that, you know, the number of elderly that have had one dose. So we still have susceptible elderly people. A lot of our population has almost, you know, hasn't even had their first dose. We have to be careful or we're going to hurt our own local small businesses by letting our case count go up and giving the governor and OHA the, you know, the reason to clamp down again on our, our small business, even though I still have yet to see a cluster track to a restaurant here in Lane County or a cluster track to a gym anywhere in Oregon, really. Um, even though we're not seeing that, that's who gets punished. Um, you know, we won't get into the science of the restrictions they're threatening us with, but we can get into the science of the fact that we do need to take these precautions. You know, COVID's a serious disease. In fact, on March 31st, the CDC released their preliminary mortality data for 2020. And guess what? Compared to 2019, the per 100,000 death rate went up 15.9%. And that's not, you know, that's not what was identified as COVID deaths. That's just the total number of deaths in the U.S. And because it's per 100,000 people, that adjusts for population growth. So from one year to the next, we had a, a practically a 16% increase in the death rate. What's different between 2020 and 2019? COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, I don't care. All these people that want to dismiss this as a simple flu, you don't get a 15 to 16% increase in death rate from a simple flu. This is a serious disease. And death is not the only complication from COVID. There are people that are living with long-term effects from having the disease. Lung damage and other damage to their systems, let alone the people that just lose their sense of smell permanently. Can you imagine not having taste in your food for the rest of your life? So it's a serious disease. We need to continue to take it seriously. We haven't gotten enough vaccine into the population yet to, to, to let up on our precautions. And if we do let up on our precautions, you're giving our government the excuse to make unscientific restrictions on our small businesses. So please, I, I encourage everybody, take this seriously. It's not over yet. We need to continue to do the things that prevent the spread of the disease. And frankly, you know, I was talking to my wife, Elizabeth, both of us are kind of on the introvert side of, you know, I don't know if folks are familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality testing where they, you know, they have four different parts of your personality and there's 16 personality types. And the first letter of the personality types is either I or E, which is introvert or extrovert. Both of us test pretty far over in the introvert side. So we're kind of not looking forward to the day when all of the COVID stuff is over with because, yeah, you know, we're just, 
we're champion social distancers. <laughs> it's our natural, you know, where where we where we're comfortable is not being around a lot of people. Although I'm sure that the folks that test on the E side of the scale have been chomping at the bit to get out there, and they may be some of the people that the COVID fatigues just set in, and, and they're justifying relaxing their their defenses based on the fact that there's vaccine getting out in the community. It's not enough yet. Don't relax, folks. But uh, you know, so if we do relax and we get the numbers to drive up. You know, it's just going to cause more issues for our small businesses. And it's allowing the governor to continue to, to, you know, push off any decisions around relaxing um, restrictions come this summer when we do know we'll have enough vaccine in arms, you know, to be fairly effective at herd immunity. But the governor is basically saying, oh, until I see the cases trending down again, I can't decide whether I'm going to allow, you know, weddings on the beach of more than 50 people or, uh, and, uh, you know, whether I'm going to allow things like the Scandinavian festival to happen up in Junction City in August. I can't let those folks start planning those events because we're still seeing case numbers go up. Well, Folks, let's not let give her that excuse. Keep our, our guard up, get the cases back trending downward, and then we can put the pressure, you know, about reopening our economy because we are losing billions of dollars a year on, you know, festivals and events that aren't happening in Oregon. There are starting to happen in other places, and some of them are being moved out of Oregon. If we don't start making these decisions, we're going to lose events permanently and economic activity permanently from the state. So take your precautions. That's kind of my COVID ID update for the week. Uh, we are seeing case counts go up here in Lane County. We are seeing our vaccines continue to go up. But we did see mortality go up across the country. We see mortality go up here in Oregon. And uh, it's a serious disease, and we don't have enough vaccine out there yet, two doses in 14 days, in enough of the population to relax. We need to continue the social distancing and being careful, washing your hands, that whole, whole, whole thing. Got to keep that up. But switching topics. But if you want to talk about COVID, feel free to give us a call, 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1 so Robin knows you want to get in on the show because we do have people that just call in to listen. But uh, switching topics, I want to talk about housing affordability for a while because we had a report yesterday from uh, our on our uh, housing afford, affordable housing action plan, which was developed by the Board of Commissioners last year. And I, at the time it was developed and adopted, I stated then that I felt like they weren't putting enough strategy items in it, in it to try and encourage private development of housing and to release the private sector's ability to construct housing. It's mostly focused on, you know, identifying land that public entities own that could be converted to public housing you know, trying to find funds for public house to build public housing. You know, it's all on the 
somehow or another, government's going to build enough housing to cure the housing affordability crisis, which is nearly impossible. I mean, one thing that's very clear is housing starts in Oregon drops significantly from prior decades. You know, from, you know, 1983 to 2003, and then you look at the the more recent decade closer to that, there was about a 20-some percent drop in housing starts per 100 new residents coming into Oregon, new new adult residents. So that's a pretty significant drop in housing being built. And government building housing isn't going to make up that kind of difference. If you kind of wonder where some of the root causes of housing affordability, we're just not building housing in Oregon like we used to. And you kind of start scratching your head, why is that? Well, you know, we passed Senate Bill 100, and it really started getting fully implemented by about 1985 here in Oregon, where everybody had urban growth boundaries. And then, you know, they supposedly had a 20-year supply of land inside those urban growth boundaries. So that takes you up to about 2005. And then think about how difficult it is to expand an urban growth boundary now and the fight that, that we get into. Now, does, do people remember the term Envision Eugene? That was all about trying to expand Eugene's urban growth boundary for housing. And what happened during that process? Well, the anti-development, quote, anti-sprawl people got into the process and basically manipulated how the inventory of available lands was done and, and the mix of housing that would normally be built to make it so that they didn't expand the urban growth boundary of Eugene, our largest city here in Lane County, at all for housing. And you wonder why housing is constrained and costing so much. Not to mention what's happening with lumber prices. We'll get we can talk about that some other time. But we have artificially constrained the land available to build housing. I mean, if you think about it, we've had housing crisis in this in this country and in the world over and over again. And almost every time you look at when there's been a real crisis in housing affordability and availability, some government has been the constraining factor. You know, whether you go back to medieval times when, when you know, the serfs couldn't find adequate housing, it was because the king or whoever was ruling that area, you know, was controlling the rents and, and construction in their, their kingdom. You know, fast forward to today, and we have things called zoning and urban growth boundaries and building codes. You know, and then even in this state, we went as far as doing statewide rent control. And we wonder why, you know, there's this constraint on on housing, let alone some of the other things we've done all the fees and taxes and everything that get built into the cost of, of owning a piece of property, which affects the price and, and rents uh, you know, for housing. You know, every dollar of property tax adds to you know, what people have to charge in rent. 
you know, to stay, to even break even. Every fee for a stormwater fee or a, you know, you, you, you know, transportation fees, whatever it is that gets built into a utility bill, you know, a monthly utility bill adds to the cost of housing. But we continue on the government side to raise the price and, and limit the supply of housing that's, that would be normally be built by the private sector and wonder why we have this housing affordability crisis. Yet there's virtually nothing in our plan to address this that talks about trying to reverse some of the things that we've done to constrict or, you know, the, the, the um, supply of housing and supply of housing being built or remove some of the fees and costs in that housing. You know, when are we going to start looking at how we can, you know, lower permit fees, reduce the amount of number of permits you have to get? You know, when are we going to start to look at how can we add land? You know, we had a housing crisis after World War II in this country. And a lot of people credit the GI Bill for resolving some of that, which it did bring in low-income loans and low-cost loans. But, you know, right now, interest rates aren't the barrier to housing. I mean, you can get a mortgage close to 3% right now. That's not the real barrier. The barrier is the price. You know, and the barrier is what, what does it cost to, you know, pay the, the, the property taxes? What ha- that gets added into your monthly mortgage, you know, when they do that, that escrow portion. You know, principal and interest is only part of that mortgage payment. Taxes, insurance, and all the other stuff, you know, adds up to that. So that, you know, we had this crisis after World War II, but you know what resolved a lot of that crisis was the invention of of a new concept, the suburb. Levittown, New York, the very first true suburb that was built right after World War II, and the houses were snapped up by folks, you know, using their GI benefits and, and uh, buying those houses. But, you know, where, where can you build a Levitt town in, in Oregon right now? Where is the land big enough, basically, to build, you know, a 1,000-unit subdivision? let alone, you know, the size of what happened on Long Island out there. You know, think of the subdivisions that sprouted up across this country in the late 40s and early 50s, all the way into the 60s during the baby boom. And where is the land to do that now in Oregon? Yet, I saw a statistic that only about 1.8% of the land mass of Oregon is developed at urban and even suburban development. I mean, so much of Oregon is undeveloped right now. Yet we have this artificial constraint we've thrown in there called an urban growth boundary that is nearly impossible 
to expand because you get this tension of, of the no growth folks that will fight at, at every step of the, of the way, let alone trying to, to do the justifications to get the um, state to approve a city's application to expand their own urban growth boundary, because now you've got to ask the state for permission to do so if you're a city. So there, you know, we don't have the land available to do what we did after World War II and expand our housing stock and to keep housing cheap. I mean, housing remained relatively cheap compared to income all the way into the 60s. And suddenly it started rising relative to incomes. And suddenly there was a need for two income families. And now it's like if you don't have a two-income family, you can't afford to buy a home. We need to go back to the day and age where we had the ability to build a Levittown and find a way to get cheap housing built by the private sector that folks can afford on a single income. And it doesn't have to be single-family homes. It could be row homes. That was my first home, was an inside, you know, not an end unit, an inside unit row home. It was the first home I purchased, my wife and I. But you don't see a lot of row homes here in Oregon because kind of the zoning's not really set up for it. You know, it's one of those kind of different sort of things that doesn't fit the current government rules. So it, it's really hard to build. And... uh you just don't see that many of them built. You know, that's part of the problem is we need to get a lot more flexibility in our in our zoning laws and in our building permit laws. You know, it'd be really easy to add a bunch of housing here in Lane County. We have a bunch of units already out there, what's called rural residential properties. But you're only allowed to have a single residence on that property. All we'd have to do is get the state to change the land use laws to allow accessory dwelling units on rural residential properties. And lo and behold, we've just about double the capacity of homes available in Lane County. Of course, not everyone's gonna put an ADU on their property. A lot of people like their privacy, but there probably would be enough of them built to start taking some pressure off of our rental market, and particularly in areas like the coast, where there's only really one incorporated city that has an eight has a you know an urban growth boundary, Florence, you know Dune City hardly counts because it's not it doesn't have um, you know septic and water systems to support urban level development, but you know all those areas around there like Mapleton which actually has a water and sewer system and all those homes, you know, could put a backyard ADU in, you know, for a grandma rent, you know, rental or whatever in an area that needs cheap housing for service industry because we killed the natural resource industry around Florence. So the only thing left is the tourism industry. So we need service employees yet you can't anything for less than a thousand dollars a month around Florence, one bedroom, one bath, thousand bucks a month. 
So, you know, we need to think, rethink somewhat how we're going to supply that affordable housing because we can't do it with building public housing units. I mean, we might be able to add a couple hundred units a year here in Lane County of public housing dedicated to low-income people or whatever. That's not going to cut it. And at that, we're going to build it using prevailing wage, government contracting, and all the overhead the government costs. And then we're going to run it with government employees. You know, it, I, I'm sure it's going to be really, you know, when you get down to the actual dollars spent per unit, it's going to be so far above what the private sector could do. So we need to do things that incentivize the private sector to build housing in this state, in this county, and this country in general. Yet we're doing exact opposite in some ways. We've got proposals in the legislature to remove the mortgage interest deduction. Going to make housing more affordable? We've got a proposal here in Lane County to add a stormwater fee to people's bills. And we're trying to figure out how we would do that, and they're talking about putting it on your property tax bill. That's not going to make housing more affordable. Now, I've got, you know, fellow commissioners that are looking for something to tax to bring money into the county to build public housing. Why not just look for a way to make it cheaper and easier for private sector folks to build homes? Look at our, you know, fee structures, look at our, our permit processes, look for ways to shortcut all of that. But that doesn't seem to be where the concentration is. We're going to, you know, the power, you know, government's going to, you know, like I was talking about, we're here from the government, we're, you know, and we're here to help you. We're from the government, we're here to help you. Some of the most scary words in the English language. That's kind of where, you know, we seem to be headed. Everybody wants to try and have a big government solution to this problem. When if you look at history, it's always been the private sector that supplies housing. I mean, just think about what what percentage of housing do you think is publicly owned in this country? Anyone have a guess at that one? It's not a very big percentage, I'll tell you that much. I I, I see Robin's kind of giving me the high sign. You want to talk about housing affordability? <laughs> <laughs> well, one couple of things I wanted to throw in there real quick. One was the uh, water runoff fee, which they do in Springfield, which is based on your how much water you use. And it's also one of the reasons why a lot of lawns in Springfield are burnt out because we can't afford to water our lawn. Because quite literally, the last time I figured, um, totaled up my utility bills, about 65% of it went for uh, taxes and fees. So about 45 or less actually went to for the actual usage. And also the other thing I want to touch on, too, that this was on KEZI, 
about the $9.8 million project, uh, apparently for the Fifth Street Market rebuild? No, actually, that's for the farmer's market. On farmer's the market? Pile. Yeah. Yeah. And is that something the city's going to pay for? Um, yeah, it's, it's a city project, although the county did promise, I think, a half million or something when we made the land swap for the half block of the park of the of the uh, butterfly parking lot for the whole block that used to be City Hall. Part of that deal was to give them some money towards that farmer's market, but it wasn't nine point eight million. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Well, riddle me this. <laughs> We just um, had a public safety tax because they didn't have the money for it, I guess. Yep. Uh, where's this money coming from? Um, I guess maybe it was money they had set aside to build a new city hall. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I am not privy to the city's books, so I can't tell you, but I was a little shocked when I saw that number, too. I was thinking, oh, my God, that's a big number. Yeah. Well, it, okay, I know, I know that everything is budgeted, you know, but still the big picture, right pocket, left pocket, still the same pair of pants, is on one hand, we don't have any money for essentials. On the other hand, let's go put in a bike lane. <laughs> and that's my story. Yeah, yeah. Well, and just a you know a little discussion that came up in the board today. We got a last minute letter from the folks, you know, the Civic Stadium booster folks that that you know rebuilding the Civic Stadium to a kids sports facility, basically, wanting us to support them getting some federal dollars um, without really kind of describing what pot they were going to be pulling it from, um, but. You know, there again, I look at Springfield and Willamette Lane, you know, the, the Bob Kiefer Center there, they managed to build that without coming begging to other people. <laughs> you know, I, I know that you're probably paying for some bonds in your property taxes over there in Springfield, but, you know, they got all that done. Yet here in Eugene, which has got a much bigger budget per capita than Springfield does. I mean, their their tax rate is huge. Spring, you know, one versus the other, and they don't seem to be able to figure out how to fund, you know, Civic Stadium rebuild or or make it a city park. You know, they kind of left that up to the, the boosters to take care of and the state to finance with some video lottery bonding money. Um, and now they want to go for more federal money and they you know, want to bring us in on it. But it's like they're leaving Civic Stadium begging. They had to, to implement a payroll tax without asking anybody to, to support their police operations. And now they're managing to find $9.8 million for a farmer's market. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Meanwhile, in Springfield, you guys have got a great facility out there on 32nd. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, Lama Lane Parks are wonderful. You know, it, it, it's a great organization. Um, and yet the city of Eugene, I, I, I shake my head. <sighs> but I digress. <laughs> Not to mention the whole idea of 
why federal money needs to be coming in for local projects like that and the whole port sort of thing of, of you know, are we going to go back to the day and age where everybody's begging money from the federal government, you know, which is just adding to the federal debt, and we're going to start having bridges to nowhere again. And, and the, the, the Senator Robert Byrd FBI Center in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, where nobody wanted to work. Uh, yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, we don't need to go back to pork. But we digress from affordable housing slightly. And I, I, I did want to you know, get into this whole concept of affordable housing. Um, today, we actually approved waiving fees for the fire victims out there uh, from the Holiday Farm Fire, which is a good thing. You know, um, we we're the last county to basically tell people one way or the other if we we're going to do it. I mean, I, there's reasons for that because our county got shorted so badly um, with the timber issues in federal the federal government that we had to cut our our um, permit department loose from our general fund and their a fee uh, pay for by fee service so the you know, the fees they charge pay for their staff that processes the permits um, so in order to do that we're going to have to suck money from somewhere else um, to, to give the fee waivers, you know, so that's, you know, one thing, but, you know, I think we probably could have done it a little bit sooner than seven months after the fire. Um, but at the same time, we also added uh, another seven bodies to that department on a temporary basis to help process those, those permits. But it just, you know, just us having to do that demonstrates how out of whack our system is you know, in, in this whole thing that we have, we already had added three people last November to that, that department to handle the fire issues. Now we're adding seven more, that's 10 people to handle the permits for the 400 victims that lost their homes out there. Um, you know, that's, you know, if everybody came in today, that's 40 permits a person, but everybody's not coming in at the same time. Um, kind of makes you scratch your head and wonder what's wrong with this picture that it takes that much staff to handle that surge of permits. Uh, but it's needed, and I support it because we've had a problem processing permits in this county for quite a while, and I, any additional staff we can throw in there to help stimulate more housing being built. In fact, I got, a, I got a, a letter that I read today during a board meeting from a constituent that has had a remodel permit hung up since October 1st of last year. Um, and they just got an email saying it's going to be a couple more months because of the fire victims permits taking priority. Um, they're, not in the, they're not a fire victim, but they, they had to leave their house because the plumbing was so bad they couldn't occupy it. And this remodel permit would fix the plumbing problem, but they're having to rent a house right now, which is competing with the rest of the people trying to rent properties here in Lane County. And their house is sitting empty waiting for a remodel permit to fix the plumbing while they're renting a unit that could be somebody else's and they're paying a mortgage and rent at the same time, much to their financial detriment. 
need to fix that. Need to get them their permit, get them, you know, let their model move forward, get them out of their rental and back into their home so somebody else can rent that home they're currently renting. You know, that's that's a problem that's, that, you know, I'm all supportive. Let's add the staff. Let's move the permits. We got we got to fix that problem here. We got to find ways to let people use the property they own. And particularly if it's for housing. And I don't care if an accessory dwelling unit might get rented out as a VRBO or, you know, some kind of a short-term rental. Because that market will saturate. There's not a forever market for short-term rentals. You know, fine, there are going to be short-term rentals out there. But, you know, eventually that market saturates and people are going to be looking for long-term, you know, one-year leases on those accessory dwelling units to pay for the cost of building them. It's going to add to the stock. Because right now, you know, the, the, that short-term rental is competing with our long-term rentals. So if somebody's building ADUs and filling up that short-term rental market and, and saturating it, great. Because eventually those become long-term rentals. Any housing is going to help control the cost of this problem. I don't care if it's somebody's McMansion, you know, that cost a million bucks being built. They're selling off a property that was probably 800000 to move into that million-dollar thing. And whoever bought their $800,000 property was moving up from a $600,000 property. And that $600,000 property was moving up from a four hundred, dollars which was moving up from a three hundred, dollars which starts getting to be affordable for a young couple. Every front door makes housing less expensive in this state. I don't care. I hate it when I hear people go, oh, but we got to, you know, worry about equity and everything else. And if we're going to stimulate, we need to make sure we're stimulating this particular kind. I, don't, I want to stimulate all housing because the more housing, the less it costs. Supply, demand, price. Right now, we've got a limited supply due to government regulations like urban growth boundaries and zoning and other issues. We have a huge pent-up demand because we've underbuilt for the last 10 years in the state of Oregon. Statistics show that clearly. So we got limited supply, huge demand. What's it do to price? Drives it through the roof. The demand's not going to go away. You can't control the demand side because that's there. That's population. Although we're we're doing things in this state right now that may actually start controlling the demand side because we keep going with our taxation and our control of business the way we're going. We're going to start seeing people move out of this state. We're going to become like California and have a net migration out. I, and that's I don't want to see housing go down because of that. I don't want to see the price drop because we've managed to chase people out of the state. Maybe that's the end, you know, strategy for some of the folks that, you know, have got theirs now and want no one else to have theirs. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a very good strategy. We need to increase the supply. That's the way the price drops. 
because we're not going to be able to keep, you know, the demand's not going to drop. And we can't build enough supply with public money to be run as public housing to even put a small dent in that demand. It's got to come out of the private side. <sighs> talked a lot of housing here. We've talked COVID, mixed in a few other things, like fee waivers for the holiday farm folks. But if there's something you want to talk about here on the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, just give us a call here, 646-721-9887. Just press 1 if you want to get in on the conversation. Talk about whatever you want to talk about, something we've talked about previously, or, you know, a new topic, give us a call. Again, 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1. That lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation here on the Bose Nose Show. If you don't call in, I'm going to start talking about the latest thing that has become racist, which I was completely unaware of until I went to read an article. And I don't know, you know, Folks over there in Springfield and Robin, maybe you've seen some of these signs, but apparently somebody's been putting up some fake historical markers around the city of Springfield. And, uh, and the article I saw had a picture of one that talked about how Agnes Stork wrestled a wolf to death. <laughs> and, 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 you know, folks wanted to see the wolf hide. It's available upon request. Springfield Library, I think it was some kind of joke to get people to one, either go, you know, inquire about the Springfield Museum or two, go to the Springfield Library <laughs> and ask about this wolf hide or something like that. To get people to, to what, one of those two places is, is the idea of putting up these, these kind of fake history placards because Agnes Stewart never did wrestle a wolf to death. Uh, that's clearly false. But, you know, the, the KLCC did a story about this and was interviewing the, the executive director slash caretaker of the Springfield Museum. And um, and an offhand comment in the article, you know, which was a pretty funny article until I got to this point, the director noted that they changed the way they, they exhibit stuff at the museum. It's no longer chronological because that can promote racism. And I was like, what? Time is now racist? Somehow or another, displaying items in a museum in chronological order promotes racism? Somebody's got to explain this to me. I mean, they didn't do it. They didn't. It was an offhand comment in the middle of this article, so they never explained how or why that's racist. But I'm like, oh, my gosh. Now time is racist. I mean, it wasn't bad enough that the state of Oregon made mathematics racist, you know, a few months back. I don't know if you guys remember those stories about the state putting out a curriculum that basically talked about how mathematics is racist and doing things like asking a student to show their work, um, you know, was was a, a white supremacist, racist sort of thing to do. Um, so now mathematics is racist, time is racist. And yesterday I also heard that trees are racist. Yes, the Portland School Board 
has held up on renaming the mascot of what was formerly Woodrow Wilson High School, speaking of racist. Now, Woodrow Wilson truly was a racist. He believed in eugenics and promoted eugenics. But they've changed the name of the high school, and the, the high school's mascot was the Trojans, and they want to change the mascot. They were going to make it the Evergreens. But the Portland School Board held up on that because they were worried that using a tree as a mascot would make people think of lynching. Okay. Now, first of all, anyone that's climbed trees knows that climbing an evergreen is dangerous because the branches snap off pretty easily. Uh, you know, it, I, I, I just never seen a fir tree referred to as the hanging tree or anything like that. Uh, it, it was like, oh my gosh, evergreens is, is racist now. Trees are racist. Time is racist. Math is racist. What's not racist anymore? Uh, you know, that, that's, you know, that's what's, you know, been caught up in this whole woke, whatever you want to call it, thing, is the redefinition of words. You know, for me, racism is about anybody that believes that there is any subdivision of the human race. There's only one race, it's the human race. And, if, and people that believe that there's some way of subdividing the human race and that some of those subdivisions are less, you know, you know, talented, worthy, or, you know, whatever you want to say, than another subdivision and believes that one subdivision has, you know, greater abilities and is predestined to, to rule the others, um, that's racism. That's the definition of racism for me. Time, mathematics, and trees are not my definition of racism. Well, you know, they did say that crosswalk signals are, are racist as well. Oh, I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it, it, it's amazing to me what gets defined as racist now. You know, we, and, and it, it's, um, it's, gone, it's gone crazy. And I... And, and, I guess now having anything displayed chronologically, I guess timeline, you know, what's interesting is Lane County just put a timeline up on our website so people could see that some of the history of racism in Lane County. You know, it, you know, it has the timeline of things like the destruction of the, of the African-American neighborhood at, you know, for the building of the Ferry Street Bridge and some of the involvements around that. And a timeline of of of, of some of that, that that's happened. That timeline's now racist because you can't put things in chronological order. I mean, I, you know. Oh my gosh, I I I I struggle with some of this and, and the redefinition of, of some of this. You know, as as I read some of what they consider to be white supremacy nowadays, you're not allowed to to celebrate individual accomplishment. That's that's white supremacists celebrating the individual group achievement. Now is the only thing you're allowed to celebrate. Now, mind you, that has more to do with collectivism 
versus individualism. But that's really, you know, where some of that comes from. They're redefining racism in ways that just basically make it so the easy comeback to everything you're doing in the world today is that's racist. And, you're, and it's supposed to immediately shut you down. So, uh, you know, some, somewhere we have to gain, regain control of the English language and define things as what they really are. And I'm sorry, museum displays in chronological order do not promote racism. Asking the student to show their work on a math problem is not racist. And having a mascot called the Evergreens is not racist. <sighs> Jay's rant's over with. I'm going to take a deep breath. Remind folks we are a call-in show, 646-721-9887. And uh, Robin, you, are, are, I get a little echo back there. Is that because you were getting ready to jump in on the show? No, that's because I hit the wrong button, and uh, and still having a little bit of audio issues on my end. Uh, I don't think I don't think the audience can hear me. I I can hear you though. So well, the that's audience, important. Hear you that dead air was Robin speaking to me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like I said at the beginning of the show, you know. Uh, fact that EPUD called me without any notice that they're going to be turning off our power for three and a half hours to where my wife runs her business um, tomorrow completely blew my beginning opening of the show and, and threw me off track. We are student-run radio here. Of course, we don't charge. We don't have advertisers. Uh, Robin doesn't make any money off of this show. <laughs> she does it out of the goodness of her heart, which I truly appreciate her helping me with this because this is my opportunity to be available and to, you know, anytime anyone wants to call in and talk to a county commissioner in Lane County and, and you know, ask a question. You know, if you want to know about that camp down there at Beltline and 11th and why it's been so difficult for us to move it, I can talk to you about that. And, yes, it has been very difficult because we're under – you know, the state wants us to follow the CDC's recommendations during COVID and not move homeless people around. They also have the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court's decision against the city of Boise that says you can't cite people for illegal camping if you don't have shelter beds available in a non-religious shelter for those folks that you're citing for illegal camping. So we have that to struggle with. But in the meantime, the city of Eugene, according to a, a study, is leading this country in per capita homeless at 432 homeless people per 100,000. You know the next closest city is below 400? You know, I think L.A. and New York, New, it was New York City was like 397 and L.A. was 396. With that far in the lead... Yay, Eugene. <laughs> I'm cheating. Yep. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks to this 
Thank you, Windows, for updating. Ever since we updated the Windows 10, still having audio issues. But I wanted to uh, kind of throw in there that uh, we are, I think, six followers away from being 100 followers. Woo! So come on, people. Let's make it around 100. Yeah. Yep. And that's on our Facebook followers? Yeah. Yep. That's KRBN Internet News Talk Radio on Facebook. So that's where people can go to see past episodes, our our archive there, and and, uh, you can click the links and get in and listen to them like a podcast. So, uh, yeah, go there and follow us on Facebook. Absolutely. And, of course, it... If you missed the show, we're also rebroadcast on Player.fm, iTunes, Vimo, and Verbal, V-U-R-B-L, and many, many others. So we're out there. So, you know, let us know. Say what you think. And, uh, you know, like Jay says, where else can you torture and harass a sitting commissioner and not get in trouble for it? Yes. Kind of. Very easy uh, and... uh, all you have to do is use your fingers on a telephone. And if you don't want to do that, you can email us, too, at talk at krbnradio.net. Um, so that, that, you know, if you don't want to actually talk, or you just want to submit a comment, that's one way. Or you can comment on the Facebook page and comment on my Facebook posts. Um, I'm available in so many different ways, whether it's through this show or through Facebook um, just drop us a line. I'm hearing my echo there, Robin. Most distracting for somebody that's not a professional at radio. <laughs> but we got about a minute left. And, you know, one of the things about doing an internet radio show is we're not time constrained. If somebody were to call with 30 seconds left in the program, I'd take the call and hold the program over because we don't have to stop at exactly 60 minutes, and sometimes we don't. But uh, we're, we're running up against that for this week, and we'll be back next week. And maybe we'll talk about something other than COVID. <laughs> something else will happen in the world. I doubt it. It seems to dominate. <laughs> but, well, there'll be other things. I didn't even get to touch on the infrastructure bill that is not an infrastructure bill that our our, uh, president and and Democrats in Congress are pushing right now, $2.1 billion. $2.1 billion. Uh, And only a quarter of it maybe qualifies as what we would call infrastructure. Well, we'll be back next week live from beautiful downtown Elmira at 4 o'clock Wednesday. Have a great week. Thank you for listening.